If you have your Bibles, I'd ask that you turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We'll be reading from verse 15 to verse 23. He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's ask for the Lord's help now. Father in heaven, we thank you that your word is powerful. We thank you for how it speaks to us the word of peace, how it speaks to us of Christ, the one who has reconciled us to you. And so, Lord, I pray now in this time, as we hear your words, your assurances that we would see Christ, that our eyes and our hearts would be set on Christ, and that we would marvel at the amazing nature of this gospel, that sinners like us might be saved, reconciled to a holy God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I want to look with you at the beauty of Christ, our reconciler. Specifically, I want to consider um, how the power and preeminence of Christ gives us the confidence uh, uh, that we have been reconciled to God. Now, admittedly, uh, this passage is like a fire hose gushing with truths about Jesus, uh, and uh, there's no way that I can exhaust that. So I'm just putting that on the table right now. Uh, we can't cover anything. But my goal is that we would see uh, the power and preeminence of Christ and seeing that, we would have confidence that he can be for us our reconciler. So my outline this morning is pretty simple. First, we'll look at Jesus as creator and sustainer. Secondly, Jesus as the reconciler. And third, Jesus as our reconciler. Jesus as creator and sustainer. Jesus as the reconciler. And then thirdly, Jesus as our reconciler. Now, it's important uh, when we're reading the book of Colossians that, uh, to remember that we're reading someone else's mail. The book of Colossians uh, was written by the Apostle Paul, if you're unfamiliar with it, to a church in the city of Colossae, which is in modern-day Turkey. And so as we read Paul's mail, it's important for us to have an understanding of the context, what's going on. 
And unlike some of Paul's other letters, uh, like uh, his letter to the Corinthians or to the Thessalonians, Paul's not writing a, a letter that, uh, to someone that he was uh, well acquainted with. He says in, in chapter 2, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea uh, and for all who have not seen me face to face. In fact, it was a faithful pastor named Epaphras who had planted the church at Colossae, not Paul. So Paul is writing to this Colossian church from a prison cell. He's in chains because of Christ, uh, and he's writing to them because he's heard a report from Pastor Epaphras about the ministry that's uh, taking place at Colossae. And clearly, Paul is is encouraged by the report he's heard from Epaphras. Uh, He says in in, uh, chapter 1, verse 6, that he's heard about how the gospel is is growing, uh, bearing fruit, and increasing among them. So this is a, a thriving young church plant, and the, the church members love one another. And yet Paul is writing to them because he's heard about a, a weird teaching that has been circulating uh, in the area where, where uh, the emphasis was on having certain mystical experiences that were perhaps prepared for by uh, uh, fasting or asceticism, avoiding certain things. There was also, we see in chapter 2, a talk of, of the worship of angels, or uh, using angels as mediators to, to come before God. And so Paul is writing this letter to the Colossians uh, to warn them against this false teaching. He doesn't want this to seep into the church in any way. Rather than, than chasing visions and going on about angels, Paul is deeply, deeply concerned that this young church, that they know Christ that they grow up in Christ. And in the verses just heading up to us, Paul is speaking about how it's by Christ that, that we have the forgiveness of sins and that we are, are brought out of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. So now he turns our attention to, to consider more closely the wonder of who Christ Jesus is. He, the beloved son Jesus Christ, he is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation, Paul begins. He begins simply by saying, Jesus is God. Jesus is the invisible God made visible to us. Just like John says in John 1.18, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God, as the NIV puts it, and is in closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. Or Hebrews 1, uh, 3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's being. In other words, when when Mary held the newborn Jesus, when the blind opened their eyes and saw Jesus who had healed them, when when the sick sought Jesus out, they were actually seeing God. They weren't seeing God through a window. They weren't just seeing a picture of God, and God is somehow distinct from that. They were seeing God in the flesh. And Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. This isn't to say that Jesus was the first of of God's creatures. That's uh, what some, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, will claim that God created the Son. But the term here is not used to speak of of Christ being a a created being. It can't, because the next line says uh, that, that anything that was created was created through Christ. Instead, what, what Paul is saying here, as was the case in the ancient world, uh, he, he, was, he was giving a, a place of privilege to Christ. In the ancient world, the firstborn was the child of, of greatest rank, the one with most prestige, of, of highest honor. 
And so, so I think here that firstborn language doesn't refer to an order of time, but to the place of importance. He is uh, the firstborn. He is supreme over creation. Next, he says that anything and everything, all things were created by Christ and through Christ. They belong to him. They are his. He is responsible for their very existence. All things are, are for him. He adds, the purpose of their being is found in being Christ. The the purpose of everything that is created uh, is for the good pleasure of the firstborn of the creation, the creator himself, Jesus Christ. Now think about what this means. A few summers ago, uh, Suzanne and I were driving back uh, from uh, two Grand Rapids from Red Deer, Alberta, uh, about a 2,200-mile drive, and on the way back, we were driving through uh, rural Montana, which... Uh, perhaps doesn't help you because all of Montana is rural, but it was really rural where we were. And um, it, it was late, it was dark, and we were in the middle of, of absolutely nowhere, driving in our, our uh, beater minivan, and we pulled over to the side of the road, we opened uh, the, the sunroof, and the, the night sky was just painted with stars. I'd never seen, I, I've never seen more stars in my life than, than when we were in Montana where there's no light pollution. And just look at, you can see maybe uh, uh, thousands of stars at that time. And that's but a small fraction of the billion stars or, or so that are said to, to exist in, in the Milky Way galaxy alone. Right? And, and what, what this passage is saying is that each star was created by Christ, through Christ, for Christ. He, he fashioned them, he molded them, he set them in place, the billions of them. He was the person and power that brought it into existence. Or consider the ocean. Pacific Ocean is uh, roughly thought to contain a volume of water 660 million kilometers cubed. I don't know what that is in miles, but uh, at its deepest part, uh, it's said to be seven miles, about seven miles deep. Now think about that. Each oceanic particle created by Christ, through Christ, for Christ. Or even closer to home, your body. A human adult is made up of nearly uh, seven octillion atoms. So that's a seven with 27 zeros behind it. That's a single person. Each and every uh, part of you, right down to the single microscopic atomic building blocks that you're made of, is made by Christ, through Christ, for Christ. We could go down the list. We could look at every coffee bean, the 10,000 species of birds, each of the the 60,000 plus species of of mushrooms, uh, the seeds that are used to grow our crops. And not only does Jesus create these things, but he sustains them. They only exist and we only exist because Christ continues our existence because all things hold together in him. If Christ didn't choose to sustain our existence, then we would go out of existence. We just disappear completely. Each and every moment, it's Jesus who is consciously willing to continue your existence. The existence of our world, the existence of our galaxy, the existence of our universe. This is immense power by Christ, through Christ, for Christ. Imagine these things, all of them, the stars, the ocean, your body. Imagine that they're like little arrows that are shooting forth from Christ. He makes all these things and he distributes them according to his will. 
And now think of, of, of uh, from each of those things as if the arrows are coming back uh, to a single point, pointing to Jesus, because just as they go forth from him, so they come back to him in whom they find their purpose. It's as if a, a, a tiny power cord could be traced from every single thing in the creation back to the one for whom and by whom and through whom they were created, Jesus. Right? This is staggering. Not only does Paul, uh, not only is he declaring the praiseworthiness of the creator Christ, but he's also communicating something else specifically to the Colossians. Paul wants to make clear that all things were created uh, by Christ and for Christ, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible. Why do you think Paul specifies that here? Heavenly and invisible? You know, Paul is including the angels here. He's saying the angels only exist because of Christ. So it's as if Paul is inquiring of the Colossians, those who are uh, perhaps hearing this talk about worshiping angels or using angels as mediators, and he's saying, you want to worship the angels? You want to go through them? Really? They're created things, just like we are. Why worship the angels? Why give your attention to the angels? Why give your praise to the angels when Christ stands as preeminent over all creation? Why go through the angels when you can go to the one who made the angels? Well, Christ is also, Paul goes on to say, the firstborn, the supreme one, the preeminent one uh, uh, from the dead. He's the greatest of all who will be resurrected. He is the privileged one. And let's just consider that this morning. Christ is the firstborn from the dead. He is the privileged one. He is the exalted one. He is the honored one as, uh, among the resurrected because by his resurrection power, uh, we shall rise too. It's by his power. He is the captain that leads his people out of the ugly mouth of death. And so he is the firstborn, the privileged of those from the dead. And just as Jesus is the firstborn over the creation, he's the firstborn over the new creation, the work of redeeming and renewing and healing the fallen creation. Because in Jesus Christ, uh, though he was fully God, in, the, in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, God reconciled to himself all things. And he did it through the horrendous, the bloody, the, the excruciating death of Christ on the cross. So Jesus stands as, as the head. He stands as firstborn, preeminent, because it was by his death, the death of the God-man, that God's plan of reconciliation would be accomplished. Again, remember, think that uh, some in, in Colossae are saying that you worship God through the angels or other spiritual beings, but Paul says that Christ is fully God, so that as you're united to him by faith, you're united to God. There's no need to go through the angels. There's no need to put other links in the chain. Right? The Son has made this union possible. He, God in the flesh, has taken what stood opposed to God and he has made peace with the creation by dying as the substitute for sin on the cross. The God-man, Jesus, reconciled to himself all things, making peace between God and man. This idea of Reconciliation assumes conflict, of course. If a husband and wife are, are, or friends or siblings, uh, to reconcile, we understand that somewhere and for some reason, something has happened uh, that shouldn't have happened. You have conflict. 
right? So you comment on how your spouse uh, drinks milk directly from the jug, and uh, he or she uh, reacts in a certain way, and all of a sudden, boom, you have conflict, right? Reconciliation then happens when the husband brings home uh, flowers to his wife, or uh, the wife um, makes her husband's favorite dessert, or whatever it is, and they say, I'm sorry, and the relationship is healed. So what prompts a reconciliation between the creation, between all things and God, which Paul's addressing here, is it's sin. It's our disobedience. It's our rebellion against God. Further, as Paul adds in in verse 21, uh, human sinfulness has opened up this gaping chasm between human beings and their holy creator. So there's not only a cosmic need, not only does the creation need to to, to, to be healed, but there is a personal need for reconciliation with God. As Paul describes it, we're hostile. We're alienated from God. We're doing evil deeds. He's not pulling any punches here, but he says, you were enemies of God. You were God haters. You were on the other side. You were fighting in Satan's trenches. You were fighting and raging against God. And our sin has made the whole world a conflict zone, all of it needing to be reconciled to God and brought into harmony with his rule and reign. But this reconciliation, this bringing creation into harmony with the rule and reign of God, says Paul by the Holy Spirit, was what God was accomplishing through Jesus' death for sin on the cross. The Son, Jesus, made peace by the blood of his cross. So just think uh, of all those cosmic pictures in Scripture of, of the peace and harmony with creation. Every biblical passage about uh, the wolf lying down with the lamb, the weapons of war being banged into plowshares, the quieting of the seas of chaos, the defeat of Satan, the, the, the end of sorrow and pain, our peace with God. It's the death of Christ, which was the means by which God would bring all this about. All these things get at God's plan to bring the world into harmony with the rule and reign of Christ. It is this just a a story that we observe from the outside, as if we were watching a drama unfold behind a sheet of glass. When I was um, uh, in a journalism program in Toronto when I was uh, 19 years old, I would uh, walk to the downtown campus, uh, from the downtown campus to the train station to to catch a train home. And I would uh, pass by uh, this really expensive, fancy restaurant. And if I happened to be walking home, around mealtimes, again, I'm 19, I'm, I'm a poor student, uh, and, and you, you smell this food, and the glass is right there, you're, you're inches from, from where people are sitting, and, and you see this, this beautiful, nice steak meal placed on the table, and all I could do as I'm walking past is, is stare from uh, behind the glass and hope the fact that I wasn't like standing there staring at their meal was making people uncomfortable, right? Well, what good is this magnificent Uh, steak meal if it's behind glass and out of reach or similar and and that's sort of the question here what good is a remarkable reconciliation if it's beyond glass and out of reach I want to I wanted to taste that steak myself I wanted to savor that steak myself I wanted to bite in it and, and enjoy it and delight in its taste well that's why verses 21 to 23 are so important here These verses smash the glass and announce that this reconciliation isn't just a a concept up here, or it's not just uh, for something for other people. It's not for the the dressed up people, the put together people, not at all. These verses uh, say that we ourselves can taste and experience and delight in this reconciliation with God through Christ. 
We're not just these sweaty-palmed, hot-breath observers on the glass that, that looks into reconciliation, but we can enjoy it by the grace of God and through the work of the Holy Spirit. We can enjoy that reconciliation. And you, and you, the general becomes particular there. Notice, this is the first time that you or us is used in our passage. When we, what we see here then is that the work of reconciliation that Jesus accomplishes through his death is not some distant, not some impersonal theological exercise, but it becomes personal and, and real and available for, for us to delight in. Real people like you and me with real sin can really be reconciled to God. This doesn't remain abstract here, but uh, Paul is saying that this reconciliation is really held out to sinners like you and me. Think of, think of Paul's life. He was alienated from God. He was hostile against God. He was raging against God and his people. And yet the Lord took hold of him on the road to Damascus, and he gives him a new heart by the Holy Spirit, and he reconciles Paul to himself. He had felt this. Paul's alienation, his hostility are removed, and he's filled with a new love for the Lord. He's filled with a new love for the Lord's people. That's what reconciliation looked like in Paul's life. And Paul's telling the, the uh, Colossian Christians that, that Jesus, through his death on the cross, was reconciling the creation to himself. Jesus' death was done to remove the hostility that existed between God and creation and replace it with a harmony. And says Paul in verse 21 that part of that reconciliation involved the reconciliation of a people to God. The Colossian Christians, Paul, you, me, if we belong to Christ by faith. Christ reconciles sinners. He reconciles spiritual disasters. wonder if you've ever uh, looked uh, at yourself in the mirror and thought to yourself, uh, what a disaster. Right? Not just because your hair was all askew. I mean, I'm wondering if you ever looked in the mirror and you thought to yourself, I'm a wreck. You know, I, the, I'm, I'm, uh, I feel so helpless. I feel inadequate. I feel worthless. I, I look at the sin that's still in my life, and you're just overwhelmed and crushed even by just the, the sense of it. Right? Have you ever dis- despaired that, that God could not love you? I, I've been there. You're just frustrated with yourself. Well, uh, Tim Keller uh, is quoted as, as saying, well, cheer up, you're worse than you think, uh, which is, uh, that's not uh, comforting pastoral advice, but uh, at the end of time, I, 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 I think he's right. At the end of time, when we uh, stand before uh, the Lord, as every person will, to give an account for uh, our lives, we'll realize that we were far sicker, we were more sinful, we were in greater uh, danger than we ever understood in the course of our lifetime. We'll be like the, the cancer surgery patient who once they've uh, woke up from the surgery is told by the doctors that the operation revealed the cancer is, is far, or it was far worse than they originally believed. We'll awaken from the slumber of death and we'll stand in the presence of, of our God and our Savior and with opened eyes we'll see for the first time that our sin was far greater than we thought, that our spiritual danger was far more pressing than we believed. Yes, uh, we are inadequate. Worse, we're, we're wicked and sinful and guilty in ways that we don't even see. On our own, there's not a, a single thing in us that would make us deserving of God's kindness. But here's the good news. While our sin is greater than we could con- conceive, our, our Savior, the Son, our mediator, is greater than our sin. 
John Newton, uh, reflecting back on his life, uh, wrote to a friend a quote that you've probably heard before, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly, that I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. Newton's sin was, was great, but he only had an average Savior. He would not have a Savior at all. This infinite chasm that sin creates between God and us demands a mediator who has infinite power. The great sin of Newton, the, the former slave owner, the blasphemer, demanded a great Savior. Your great sin demands a great Savior. My sin demands a great Savior. And so in Colossians 1, Paul gives us a clear picture of a great Savior. He submits that the resume and the accomplishments of the Son make him able to fulfill the role of mediator and Savior, the one who reconciles us to God, the one who saves us from sin, is the placer of the stars, the carver of oceans, the creator of atoms, the sustainer of all things. The one who deals with sin, says Colossians 1, is the one by whom and through whom and for whom all things were made. The firstborn, the supreme one over the creation. The one who deals with our sin is the one in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's an unrivaled resume. The one who died to reconcile us to God, to remove the hostility that existed between us and God and replace it with a harmony, is the greatest of all possible representatives. We don't need to seek help from uh, the angels, as some were suggesting in Colossae, nor do we have to worry that we ourselves are inadequate to reconcile ourselves to God, because the one who is supreme over the creation... And the one who is supreme over the creation that is to come has acted to reconcile us to God. Our reconciler is far greater, far more powerful than the sin in us. He's stronger than the weakness in us. So don't despair at your helplessness, your inability, your inadequacy, but cry out to the one who is both willing and able to help you, to bring you to God in love. Lastly, I want to point out the glorious nature of this reconciliation. It's possible that you can be reconciled with someone that you've hurt or been hurt by and have a relationship that's cordial and uh, friendly, polite, uh, but never quite the same. For example, you've uh, had a friend that's betrayed you uh, and hurt you deeply, and sometime after a period of, of Uh, hostility, the relationship uh, can be repaired and you go back to to talking with one another and spending time uh, with each other, but you still see reasons in the other person that you just sort of keep them at a safe distance. You see sort of things, uh, maybe gossip or deceit or thoughtlessness that originally broke the relationship, uh, it's still somewhat visible, and so you're, you're reconciled, but it's a fragile, moderate reconciliation. Well, when God reconciles us to himself in Christ, we're not reconciled in that way. Christ reconciles us to God to present us as holy, blameless, and above reproach. He repeats this three times as if to drive it through our stubborn heads and our dull hearts. If you've put your your faith in Christ, if you've uh, been united to him uh, by trusting in him as your Lord and Savior, he's reconciled you to God already. That's a present reality. You are reconciled. But all who the Son reconciles, he intends to present before God as holy and blameless. That's the future reality. It's where he's taking you. He is making you holy 
to the extent that one day when the Lord calls you home, you will be made completely holy without single spot of sin or, or, or anything in you. Jesus didn't reconcile you to God so that you would merely be on friendly terms with God. By his death for you, he did far more than that. Jesus repairs the relationship between you and God so that there's no more enmity, there's no more hostility. You're no longer viewed as, a, as the rebel that you were, but his reconciliation is so perfect, it's so complete, that he will make you holy and blameless so that we can stand in intimate, perfectly restored, unbreakable relationship with the Father. You see, if sin remained in us, we could never enter into God's presence. At best, we could be kept a polite distance. But if he would make us holy, if he would make us completely holy, then we, can be, we will be invited into his glorious presence to stand as adopted sons and daughters with his full favor, with perfect, lasting intimate reconciliation so that we might fall down on our faces before the king of heaven, casting down our crowns and saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive power and glory and honor for you created all things and by your will they have existed. And the one, uh, uh, and the one for whom all things were created and by whom all things ex existed uh, will, will receive the praise of his saints. The Lord Jesus uh, will, will receive our worship as we stand spotless, blameless. See, we were enemies, raging war against God, but the Son, our Savior, showed his love for us in this. Though we were spiritually filthy, he reconciled us so that one day we will stand before God, not in the tattered uh, uniform of a, of a rebel, of an enemy, of a defeated foe, but that we might stand before him in his presence in the cleansed and pressed wardrobe of heaven. We who were far off, we who were alienated to God have been brought near to him, made holy by the Son, drawn by the Son into an intimate communion with God that will have no end. This is, this is for you, friend. So if you're trusting in Christ, this is yours. If you're not trusting in Christ, run to him, uh, uh, come to him. He, he gladly holds out this offer of reconciliation. But if, if you're trusting in him, this is yours. Continue in him. Continue holding on to this message. Continue holding on to this Savior. Don't shift. Don't fall back. Don't distress over your inadequacy and weakness. Don't go searching for other means to get yourself right with God or win his favor. But lean into Jesus our mediator, our reconciler, the firstborn over the creation and the new creation. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, you are glorious. You are majestic. You are worthy of all our praise. As the one who has created us and for whom we are created, we just acknowledge your, your power and your splendor and your beauty. And Jesus, we acknowledge you as the one who is the firstborn from the dead, the one who, who uh, brings his, his people with him, who, who makes them live, who rules over, uh, you rule over your church, a kindly, gentle rule. And we thank you, that Jesus, that you are the one who has reconciled us so that we might come to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and, and have, 
a relationship with you. We might know you. We might delight in you. Oh, might we see just more and more of how wonderful you are, Jesus. Help us to do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.